0: New Horizon has been serving the church in Northern Ireland since 1989, and we're delighted to bring you this talk today. We trust you will be blessed through this ministry. Good morning, everybody. Very glad to be here. Um, I am a little worried about something, though. I'm gonna share this with you to get it out of the way. Um, You may have noticed that of the three main stage speakers, I am the only one who is not a bishop. Um, just a humble Presbyterian minister, I'm afraid. Um, Now, for myself, I'm quite relaxed about that. And by the way, there's something you don't see very often, relaxed and Presbyterian in the same sentence, more or less. (coughs) So I'm I'm quite relaxed about it, but I'm worried that some of you high church folks may not be so relaxed about this. Um, So I want to tell you something that will will help you. Um, (coughs) Some of you gardeners may know this Uh, plant. Um, In England, this plant is known as Bishop's Weed. Um, We have the same plant in Scotland, but we know it by a different name. We know it as Creeping Elder. Um, So there's the piece of help for you this morning. If you're worried that I'm not a bishop, just think of me as a Creeping Elder. And and you'll reduce the gap uh, between myself and my Episcopal colleagues to acceptable proportions. Uh, With that extremely important matter out of the way, uh, let us turn now to the Word of God. And we're going to read uh, together from uh, part of Genesis and then from John's Gospel. So Genesis 1 verses 1 to 10. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And then moving on a little bit. Verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground." And then just a few verses, very famous verses from John chapter 3. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Amen. May God bless us as we consider these words and these important ideas. God so loved the world. Very famous and well-known words, I'm sure. A wonderful truth, and we're going to be thinking about this truth in some depth in the course of our mornings this week. But my question today is, when did God begin to love the world? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Fantastic news. But when did God the Father begin to love the world? Was it only when God the Son came among us? And were human beings only capable of believing in the Father after God the Spirit came in power at Pentecost? When did God begin to care about eternal life, and when did he begin to save the perishing? (coughs) Every so often I meet people who tell me that they are New Testament Christians, and I I ask them what they mean. Well, we believe what the people in New Testament times believe, they say. That's our scripture, the New Testament. That's where we go to discover who God is and what he's doing in the world and how we're supposed to live the Spirit-filled life. Really, I reply. But didn't those New Testament people believe that the Old Testament was their fundamental scripture? Didn't they believe that it's fundamentally to the Old Testament that Christian believers should go in order to discover who God is and what he's doing in the world and how we should live? Didn't those New Testament people believe that Jesus himself had given them the Old Testament as their scripture? In fact, I ask these folks. Didn't Jesus explicitly identify Himself as the God who had already revealed Himself to Abraham and Moses and David back in Old Testament times? And these questions often come as a surprise to the folks I'm talking to. It is as if I were speaking Martian. Such is the state of Christian faith in various parts of the worldwide church today a church in which our Old Testament Scriptures are marginalized at best, at the very worst completely ignored, a church in which the story of God's dealings with the Old Testament people of God is routinely assumed to have little or nothing to do with God's dealings with the New Testament people of God, a church in which, if truth be told, people find it difficult to connect the God who is revealed in the Old Testament with the God who is revealed in the New. The God of the Old Testament is a God of anger and judgment, I hear people say. The God of the New Testament is a God of love and mercy. Uh, The Old Testament is a book of law, they say. And in the New Testament, it's all about grace. Uh, And so it goes on. And in this discourse, the connection between Jesus himself and God often gets broken or at least seriously damaged. In people's minds, it seems to me oftentimes, there's God over here and there's Jesus over here. And God has always been involved in the world and working in the world, but Jesus only starts doing things much later. And Jesus is quite different in character from God. He's quite nice, but God the Father is quite angry. And then there's the Holy Spirit, and nobody really knows what to do with the Holy Spirit. Well, I know you Pentecostals do. Presbyterians don't (laughs) typically know what to do with the Holy Spirit at all. Uh, The Holy Spirit in in this scenario, if you talk to folks, really only shows up really late in the story at Pentecost, and nobody quite knows what the Holy Spirit was doing before that. It sometimes seems to me that in, in many folks' theology, the Holy Spirit plays a function very similar to the enthusiastic young bench player in a basketball game. You know, the game's going on, it's getting closer to the final buzzer, and the kid on the bench is getting more and more agitated. Put me in, coach, put me in. I can bring new energy to this performance. I can even help you with your communication issues. No, says the coach, sit down. We're going to continue with the starters, but you'll get to play for the last five minutes. When did Almighty God, when did the eternal triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when did God begin to love the world? When did God begin to care about people believing in Him, about eternal life, about saving the perishing? I want you to uh, suggest to you this morning that God began to do all these things in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why did he do that? Why is there a cosmos at all? What is it for? Ancient Israel's neighbors in the Near East had their own answer to this question. What is the cosmos for? they would have said the cosmos is for the gods. It came into being along with the gods. It came into being for the benefit of the gods, for all those ancient neighbors of Israel. The cosmos was fundamentally where the gods lived. They lived in the heavens, in the sun, in the moon, in the stars. They lived on earth, in the storms and in the sea. The cities of the ancient world were first built for the gods. In the modern world, we automatically think that cities are built for people to live in. But that's not the case in the ancient world. Cities back then were built for the gods. And so were the temples inside these cities. We think of temples as being a bit like churches, places of worship built for ordinary people to meet in and to pray and to praise God, but not in the ancient world. In the ancient world, temples were fundamentally homes for the gods. And in these temples you would find images placed, and each of these images marked the presence of a particular deity in a particular temple. So the god was present in the image, and the god was thereby intrinsically bound up with the fertility, prosperity, peace, and justice of the city. In the ancient Near East, the cosmos was for the gods. And so the question arises, of course, Where did ordinary men and women fit into this worldview? And the answer is, ordinary folks like you and me, we were created to work for the gods. In ancient Near Eastern mythology and religion, the gods, the minor gods, a bit like teenagers become tired of their chores. They're cosmic chores. So they create a slave class to do their chores for them. They create human beings. That's what a human being is, really, in the ancient Near Eastern worldview in Mesopotamia or Egypt or wherever. Human beings are a cosmic afterthought designed to meet the needs of deity. And what this meant in practice back then was a highly stratified hierarchical society with the king at the top because the king in those ancient societies was either thought of as being a god or at least half a god. The king always had one foot at least in the ocean of divinity. And just below the divine king, if you had visited ancient Mesopotamia, you would have observed a few people caring for the king in the palace. Everyone else would have been involved in the economy of the city-state, focused on the temple. In the temple, you would have found a few priests set apart to look after the image of the deity, feeding the deity, looking after the needs of the deity, trying to make sure the God was happy and did not leave, because if the God left, you were in big trouble." So in the ancient world, out of which our biblical texts first come, the whole of human society was oriented toward the gods, just as the cosmos existed for the gods. But in the book of Genesis, we get a very, very different picture. There's no idea in the book of Genesis that the cosmos is created in order to meet God's needs. In the biblical view of God, God does not have needs. And the ongoing presence of God in the world does not depend on our satisfying God's needs. Nor is there any idea in Genesis that the world is created for God. The world in Genesis is created for creatures. And these creatures do not need to feed the gods as they did in the ancient temples. In Genesis, God blesses the creatures with food. And no creature in Genesis is created as a slave of the gods. This includes human beings. In fact, in Genesis, the position of ordinary folk like you and me is extraordinarily exalted. Human beings in the book of Genesis are the high point of creation, they are given important tasks in creation. In Genesis 1, they are to rule and subdue, that's royal language. In Genesis 2, they are to look after the garden, that's priestly language, kings and priests. So human beings in Genesis are no longer caretakers of the divine image in the temple. In Genesis, human beings are the image of God in the temple. That's how creation is pictured in Genesis 1 and 2. It's pictured as a cosmic temple. God created human beings, we are told, in His own image, male and female. What a wonderful truth. This truth has changed the world. God created human beings in His own image, and because of that, of course, we, every single one of us, bears tremendous dignity and responsibilities. It's hard for sometimes for those of us living in the West to appreciate what a radical idea this is, because we're accustomed now to the idea of the importance of the individual. We talk about rights. They seem self-evident to us. But the only reason we think that way is because we have inherited this biblical idea. It has shaped Western culture. I heard a a man from India talk in our church a few months ago. He was a Dalit, which is the lowest of the low in the caste system of India, the untouchables, as they're sometimes called. And he was giving his testimony, and he said that it wasn't really John 3.16 that grabbed his attention as a Dalit in India. It was Genesis chapter 1. When he heard that he was an image-bearer of God, it changed his life. Because in, 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 in the Hindu caste system, the Dalit are nothings. They're not even human beings. They're outside the bounds. So what is the cosmos for in Scripture? It's for God's creatures. God did not need the cosmos to exist. There was no deficiency in God that required the cosmos to exist. There was no lack of relationship that demanded that we be created. From all eternity in Christian belief, God has existed in perfect relationship within the divine self, in a three-in-one relationship that needs nothing outside of itself. God is love. Scripture teaches us God does not need any lovers, but simply out of love, simply out of generosity, simply out of a deep desire to bless, out of a full and overflowing heart, and so that other persons can be drawn into the divine life to enjoy what is already true of God, simply for those reasons. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The cosmos was created out of love. It was birthed in love by a God that the Apostle Paul will later tell us, by a God who is for us, Romans chapter 8. Right from the beginning, love lies at the heart of the whole enterprise. God so loved the world right from the beginning, and that's why anything exists at all. What kind of relationship was God looking for when God created? God was looking for a relationship that involves trust, a relationship that involves belief in the language of John 3:16 whoever believes in him shall not perish but let's not make the mistake of thinking that this johannine believing is simply a matter of belief you remember what james says in his letter you believe there is one god good even the demons believe that and they shudder there's believing And then there's believing. To believe rightly in biblical thinking is not only to believe things about God, it is also to trust yourself to God. The one without the other is not true biblical belief. So God is looking for belief, God is looking for trust. When did that begin? Did that begin? with the Incarnation? When did God begin to care about whether His human creatures believed in Him and trusted Him? Was it only in New Testament times? No. It was right from the beginning. Right from the beginning, God has been looking for His image-bearing creatures. God has been looking for us to be in a right relationship with Him, And this involves, at the core, trust. Trust that God is the one and only God. Trust that God is good. Trust that God is for us and deserving of our love. You will know very well, I'm sure, the story in Genesis 3 about the Garden of Eden and the fall. What's going on in that story? That is a story, I believe about trust. Fundamentally, it's a story about trust. You remember what the serpent says, did God really say? That's the beginning of a very long tradition that comes all the way down to the present day. Did God really say? It's a very big question in post-Christian Western culture. Generally, sadly, it is becoming a question in the Western church as well as we face cultural pressure from all around did god really say and the human pair get confused about what god really said and why he said it they begin to think that god is really perhaps not all about love and generosity after all they begin to wonder whether god is mean spirited and self-censored and right there right there is the beginning of all our human trouble. People sometimes say to me that they think the original sin was pride or the breaking of a divine commandment, but before we get to pride and before we get to disobedience, in this story there is first of all a lack of trust. We discover here a lack of trust in the goodness of God. That is where it all begins it leads on then to a declaration of independence from God. Surely, life must be better, we think, if we can just set God to one side. So, when did God begin to look for trust? When did God begin to look for believers? Right from the beginning. And right from the very beginning, says the book of Genesis, we have been reluctant to offer such trust we prefer to trust the serpent. We prefer to hide from God. When did God begin to care about eternal life, and when did He begin to save the perishing? It's the language of John chapter 3 again. When did that begin? Right from the beginning. In Genesis 2, we read about a tree of life, growing there in the garden, it grows there not as a hurdle to trip us up, not as a trick by a trickster God to catch us out. It grows there not simply to test our faith. It grows there as a witness to where the story is going. Right from the beginning, in the biblical story, we are headed toward immortality. Right from the beginning, we are headed toward glory. Just let it be so that we will take God at His words when He tells us who He is. Just let it be so that we will trust Him and love Him and love each other and love other creatures as well. Just let all of that be true. And not only will this life be wonderful, says Genesis 2, but in addition to that, there will be a gateway into a different life, into eternal life. There is in this tree of life already a whole other chapter to our human story envisaged. So, when did our wonderful and loving God begin to care about eternal life? As far as I can see right from the beginning. It wasn't plan B. It was already part of plan A. And when did God begin to save the perishing? Right from the beginning. John, in his revelation, writes of the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world, a solution to the problem of evil, devised right at the outset of the story by the God who is for us and who is patient with us, because, as Peter reminds us, He does not want anyone to perish. And this is not only a solution for the future, the solution involving the Lamb, it's a a solution for the here and now as well, as God patiently, right after the fall, Begins to care for the wounded world that now exists. When did God so begin to love the world that He began to enter into this messy life that we live, began to restrain evil, began to turn evil to good? When did that begin? Right at the beginning. Just as soon as evil enters human experience, that's when God began His redemptive work in the world. And we see this in multiple ways throughout Genesis 3 to 11. A number of glorious pictures in these chapters of God's love. A God who does not give up on calling His human creatures toward That same goodness that he displays, but a God who does not coerce the goodness he commands. A God who is holy still, but finds ways of continuing to work for good in a world compromised by evil. A God who does not reject the world, does not step back from the world, is not aloof from the world just because it is fallen. But in Genesis, a God who takes the world as He finds it and actively works within it to turn the evil toward the good. So let me give you a few examples. Consider the problem of human nakedness in Genesis 3. The fruit of the tree has been consumed. The man and the woman created to be naked and not ashamed find themselves now to be ashamed. And you remember, they cover up with fig leaves, absolutely useless materials for making clothes. Uh, Try it sometime. It won't go well, I guarantee it. Humanity has made a huge mistake in committing the sin, and now they make a huge mess of the cover-up. And what happens next? God steps in. The God of love steps in and provides them with proper clothing made of animal skins. Clothing is necessary in this fallen world. We need it now that darkness has descended upon us. We need it to cope with God. We need it to cope with each other. We need it to cope with ourselves. And God says, so be it. But if there's going to be clothing, at least it will be proper clothing. And in a beautifully intimate picture in Genesis. God steps in and makes it so. He takes the world as He finds it, and He leaves it better than He found it. And this is who God is in our biblical story right from the beginning. This is not an all-or-nothing God. This is a God of grace and love and mercy Who gently turns the bad always toward the good. Consider Genesis chapter 4, the story that follows on from the story of the garden. In Genesis chapter 4, some of you will remember there is a famous murder Cain murders Abel. And as we read the remainder of Genesis, we discover that society would have been perfectly justified in putting the murderer to death. Only a life can compensate for a life, Genesis 9 tells us, a life for a life. But in Genesis 4, Adam does not put Cain to death, and God does not put Cain to death. God sends Cain instead into exile. God does not do what God would be justified in doing. Who among us could stand if God acted in the world in the basis of what He was justified in doing? I could not stand, could you? Cain could not have stood. But in Genesis 4, even Cain the murderer lives on, and that is not the end of it. Cain refused to keep his brother Abel, am I my brother's keeper, he said. He deliberately and defiantly refuses to look after Abel, but God in Genesis 4 promises to look after Cain. Cain is worried that as he wanders, he'll be vulnerable to attack from strangers, and God says, I will put my mark on you uh, and I will protect you from that fate. If somebody murders you, I will step in, says God, and be your blood avenger. God gives to Cain what Cain would not give to Abel. He spares Cain's life, and he goes on to offer Cain precisely the protection that Cain had not offered his brother. It's an unbelievable story. It's an amazing story. God is not an all-or-nothing God. With God, it is not simply a matter of the kingdom of God right now, all holiness, righteousness, and peace, and justice, and on the other side, the destruction of the wicked. The living God is not the God of the binary. This is not the God of the dichotomy. This is not the God of the great either or. That's not the way He deals with the world now anyway. The living God, who is revealed in Genesis chapter 4, is the God who is in pursuit of good in the midst of evil, and even the murderer Cain gets pursued for good. He's a nasty piece of work, Cain, but he gets pursued for good. And indeed, Cain's line goes on to achieve very significant things culturally. God blesses Cain's line, even though Cain's descendants are a really bad bunch as well. And then consider the story of the great flood. We're told that God sends this flood upon the earth because of the great evil in the world. Everything has become corrupt. And so the flood comes and then it goes away again. And perhaps, as readers of the Bible, we expect that the flood waters, once they are gone, will reveal a world now cleansed of evil. There will be no evil left in the world. Perhaps we expect that after the flood, the kingdom of God will once again be established. But if you know the story, you know that that's not what happens. What we actually find after the flood is that nothing has changed in the human heart. Every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, says Genesis chapter 8, which is more or less what was said before the flood. Every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. It's very disappointing. Things are just as bad as they were before. So what do you think happens next? If you've seen uh, the recent Noah movie, you will know that this question is the question explored at the end of that movie. You may remember in the movie that Noah is convinced that the human heart being so irredeemably evil that human beings must now come to an end. Human life must be extinguished, he says. Evil is endemic to the human heart. Nothing can change that deadly reality. And so in the movie, he sets out to murder his grandchildren to finish humanity off. But in our biblical story, thank God, God is not like that, not in the least. God does not give up on human beings just because our hearts are evil. What happens in the flood story is really quite astonishing. It's even more astonishing than what happens in the Cain story. Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, God promises that He will never again curse the ground because of humans. He will never again destroy all living creatures as long as the earth endures. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease." Genesis 8 verse 22. It's a very remarkable thing. Even after the great flood has almost brought creation to an end, human beings are not going to change their approach to God and each other. So what happens? God announces a change in His own approach to human beings. It's a very remarkable thing. God adjusts Himself to the reality of things. And He says, even though human beings are still wicked, I will never again respond to this wickedness by turning the world back into watery chaos. The ordered world will endure. It will endure so that God's creatures may flourish, even though human beings are wicked. Amazing grace, amazing love. God meets us where we are, and so that our human story can continue at all, He tells us in all of His forbearance and patience and compassion, I will not do this kind of thing again. God so loved the world. In the beginning, and then on throughout the entire Old Testament story that follows. Consider Abraham, for example. Abraham called as a vehicle for God's blessing to all the nations, as we'll see tomorrow. But what kind of person is Abraham? He trusts in God, of course, and we're encouraged to follow that example in Scripture. But does he always trust in God? In, in the story of Genesis? What about his wife Sarah? In Genesis, Abraham is quite capable of lying when it suits him to do so. Sarah is quite capable of being cruel to the concubine Hagar. Both of them are portrayed as failing to trust God for the Son that's to come. They take matters into their own hands, you remember, by using a slave to get a son. So, this is not an ideal society, but God works with this society. And in the course of the Abraham story, we learn to our amazement that God would have gone on working even with Sodom and Gomorrah if only a few righteous people had been found. Very wicked societies. Was God anxious to judge Sodom and Gomorrah? Not at all. If only a few righteous had been found, we read, God would have spared even those terribly corrupt societies. Then we move on to Jacob and Leah and Rachel, a very, very flawed group of people. Brother deceives brother. Esau, the hairy man, is outdone by Jacob the smooth man, he's a smooth operator. It's a deceitful society, deeply corrupted by favoritism. Rebecca refers to Jacob as her son, Isaac to Esau as his son. Jacob, we're told, love Rachel more than Leah. Well, it's not going to end well, is it? It's not going to end well, and it doesn't. An unhealthy, competitive society, a society that brings death to its members. Rachel dies in the process of this childbearing contest, as it were, with, with Leah. In particular, think of Jacob. Jacob is the original despicable me on a long journey of discovery leading through Bethel where he first encounters God even though he has not a clue what's going on. His journey leads to Haran, where the cheater Jacob meets his match in his cheating uncle Laban. It then leads back to a stream called the Yabok, where Jacob wrestles with God, receives a new name, is reconciled with Esau. God brings good out of evil. A lot of good out of a lot of evil. And what about Jacob's children? Do you think they learned anything from this? A terrible bunch of kids. Joseph, the favorite of his father, a teller of tales about his brothers, provoking his brother's hatred, ending up as a slave in Egypt. In Egypt, a mixed set of achievements. He resists temptation with Potiphar's wife, which is good but he oppresses the Egyptians when he has the power to do so, which is not so good. And what about his brothers? A murderous crew, bent on revenge. Judah persuades them not to murder Joseph, but only because there's no money to be made. Reuben comes out best, but even Reuben does not directly confront his brothers about their wickedness, and he joins in the lie to Jacob later about what happened an absolutely, horrendously horrible family. And yet, God is at work in the midst of this family. And toward the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph acknowledges that even in his brother's terrible crime against him, God was nudging the world toward the good. You intended to harm me, he tells them. He's nothing if not blunt. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. It's really, it's really the epitaph to the whole book of Genesis. It's what the whole book is about, actually. And we could go on a, a long time with this. Time does not allow me, really, to go on much further. If it did, we could speak at great length about the Exodus, the Israelites toiling under the Egyptian Pharaoh. Are these people different from their ancestors? Are they any more inclined to follow God's ways? Well, no, it's not because of their righteousness that God delivers them from Egypt. He rescues them from Egypt out of His great love and mercy. And it would be nice to think that afterwards, out of gratitude, these people were different. But you may remember that as they are gathered at Mount Sinai to receive the kingdom guidelines that are to shape their lives, at the very moment when Moses is at the top of the mountain receiving the commandments, the people are at the bottom of the mountain getting Aaron to build them golden calves. You remember a golden calf. They are a stiff-necked people, as they are described. But God continues with them." Very interesting parallel here to the earlier flood story, which my friend Walter morbidly brings out. He says of these two stories, the flood and at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus, this narrative analogy suggests a deep theological vision. God deals with the world in general in the same way as with Israel in particular. If both Israel and the world show themselves to be faithless at the outset and to be continually faithless, then their continued existence is similarly to be understood in terms of the merciful forbearance of God toward those who do not deserve it. Life for both Israel and for the world is a gift of grace. A gift of grace, a gift of love, and we could follow this all the way through the Old Testament story, through the narrative of the Judges, where God's people turn again and again to other gods to worship them, but God persists with His people. Through the period of the early monarchy in the books of Samuel, where God's people sinfully request a king so that they can be like the other nations, which is a fantastic example of completely missing the point. They're supposed to not be like the other nations, but they ask God for a king, and astonishingly, even though it is a sinful request, God says, okay, okay, we'll have a king. And God weaves that sinful request into His good plan. And David eventually emerges, and we know where that goes in terms of Jesus, but you have to remember that Jesus' ancestors arose in the first place as a result of a sinful request by the Israelites of God. And we could track God's love and grace all the way through the monarchy, all the way through the disaster of the fall of Samaria and Jerusalem, into the exile. We could watch God resurrect His people from the valley of the dry bones and bring them back to the land. And in all of that, you would see the same person, the same triune God working with the world in grace and mercy and love but I don't have time to tell you any of that. All that remains for this morning is this. Don't let anyone tell you that God the Father only began to love the world when God the Son came among us. And do not let anyone suggest that we human beings have only been capable of believing in Him now that God the Spirit has come in power at Pentecost, and really think about the idea, I think we should reject the idea, that God only began to care about eternal life and about saving the perishing in these relatively recent times. The truth is far more fantastic and amazing and extravagant than that. The truth is that God so loved the world from the very beginning and God has never once stopped loving it since. The very idea of the world is an idea that love had. The very shaping of the world is an activity that love engaged in. Our own personhood as human creatures is an image that love created. And from the beginning, love intended that we should not only enjoy this life as a wonderful gift, but later enjoy another one. And from the very beginning, love looked for love in return, and beneath that looked for trust as the foundation of love. And almost from the very beginning, when things began to go wrong, love has sought us out, and love has pursued us, and love has even opened itself up to receive our appallingly bad ideas, our appallingly bad motivations, and our extremely appallingly bad actions. God has opened Himself up to receive these things and to weave even those things into a wonderfully good plan for the cosmos, always turning evil to good wherever it is found. You intended to harm me, says Joseph, but God intended it for good. God is love, says John in his first letter to the churches. And that's just the truth of the matter. God is love. It has always been so. It will always be so. And there's not a moment goes by where we should not praise God for this reality. Amen. Thank you for listening to this talk. If you would like to know more about New Horizon, please visit our website at newhorizon.org.uk.